If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, this is all a bit postmodern, ironic and confusing because uh, this is the last of our special pre-recorded episodes. So I know where I am in time and place, but <laughs> I've got no idea where we are at the moment when this goes out. I think it's Thursday the 27th of July, Kieran, but... You're on holiday. You're still you're still on the beach somewhere. I hope. Probably. No, I, th- I think I'm back. Oh, I think I'm teaching. Probably. Oh, <laughs> I, I, had I, you, I had this image of you on a beach somewhere with your your socks rolled up and a spreadsheet over your face while you had a little a little snooze. <laughs> um, anyway, this is um, the the first in our long promised series of nostalgia episodes and, and could be last as well depending upon the reaction of our uh, our listeners yes very much so well <laughs> it, because because we're nice we you know we, we could have had just a two week break and, and had you know nothing dead air or we could have put some old highlights out although good luck for producer guy finding <laughs> an old highlights on but we thought no no we'll we'll give we'll give our, our lovely loyal listeners Something to look forward to, even while we're trying to have a break. Um, so we thought we would do a short pod here about arguably the most seismic event in English football since the league was founded in 1888. Um, and now that we have that James Brown interview in the can, we really don't have to hang about for an in-depth analysis anyway. <laughs> I mean, it was always meant to be just a 15-minute pod full stop, which I said to James Brown at the start of the interview. Um, it's not even a 15-minute interview. It's about 45 minutes, so we don't have to do too much. But I think I've always wanted to do this, Kieran. Partly, we keep saying nostalgia, and it will be nostalgia for a lot of our listeners. But for a lot of our younger listeners and for a lot of our listeners overseas, this will be history, really. It's just giving a bit of context to how the Premier League developed. So if we start, Kieran, by saying Italia 90, and we're now talking about the summer of 1992, so Italia 90 had sort of started the long process of rehabilitating English football's image. But the 70s and 80s had been grim. And I guess financially, Kieran, that football hadn't changed that much in that century since 1888, had it? No, no, it hadn't. What It had been four fairly grubby stands, floodlights, absolutely appalling food, terrible toilets, um, increasing malevolence and 
dwindling crowd. So I, I looked at some of the attendances uh, in, in 1991, for example. Um, Brighton got to the playoffs to get to what would have been the, the precursor of the Premier League. We averaged seven thousand that season. Yeah, you know, you know exactly. A few years ago, that, that Palace have been averaging sort of six and seven thousand as well in, in in the second tier of, of I, English I, football. I remember one game, Kieran, against Shrewsbury in the second tier of English football, where there was four thousand one hundred. Yeah, in, in Sellers Park, and we were amazed that we got that much. That was partly because Alan Mullery was our. Our manager, I have to say, which is a, a, a lamentable episode in football. But it's uh, people forget, and people who weren't born, you look at the new Stamford Bridge, younger Chelsea fans, you try and explain what Stamford Bridge used to be like to younger Chelsea fans. They don't believe you. But, but financially, Kieran, there was pretty much only one model of ownership, and that was tended to be local boy made good, didn't it? Oh, yeah, there, there, was, there was nothing else because yeah. there was no global appeal as far as. English football was concerned. Um, we got ourselves very giddy when Spurs signed uh, Ricky Vila and Ozzy Ardiles in yeah. 1978. We thought that was the most glamorous thing. But yeah, I used to think it was glamorous when we got had Parmesan cheese on spaghetti. <laughs> yeah, when I was growing up. Spaghetti? And Where were spaghetti. you living? Where were you living? Spaghetti? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's my Uncle Franco, you see. That's, that was... Uh... Uh, well, fair enough. <laughs> There's a hint. <laughs> Um, so it was a it was a completely different environment, and uh, the only owners of football clubs there was no such thing as you know, concepts of clubs going to the markets or uh, foreign foreign investment funds or or hedge funds because football was was seen as a toxic uh, part of society. We we were castigated as football fans. Yeah, we. We were kept in cages, and, and yeah, of course, that led to the tragedy at Hillsborough, yeah, um, and the Taylor Report, and, and things things improved in 1990 because it was a glamorous tournament, and, and we had Paul Gascoigne. But other than that, there wasn't a lot to cheer about. No, there wasn't, and it 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 wasn't that long since the one million pound transfer fee to Trevor Francis had been uh, greeted as the end of football as we know it. That that's it. I've looked so many people of a certain age saying, I'll never go into football again. And as we discussed on our last questions pod, Kieran, I think I'm a bit confused now. Wages for players in and around this time were what you'd consider laughable now, wouldn't they? Yes. I mean, I, I, I've done the the figures um, and the, the average salary for a footballer was a hundred thousand pounds a year? So two two grand, yeah, good money. We're oh, not yeah, denying that, not denying yeah, yeah, that. But, but it was uh, it was it was less than two grand a week. Um, and and now, of course, the the average is yeah about sixty in the Premier League. Mm. Um, and we'll, we'll take a look at what's happened elsewhere in football later on. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we're, we're fully aware that footballers are earning up to twenty million pounds a year. Um, compared to £100,000 a year um, at the commencement of the Premier League. Wages have increased by 3,600% as far as footballers' wages are concerned, whereas inflation has increased by 164 since the commencement of the Premier League. Wow. So what and who then, Kieran, were the driving forces behind this radical restructuring of English football? Well, I, I remember... Uh, being at university and 
one of the lecturers said, if ever you're trying to work out something in business, the chances are that it's something to do with power, control, and money. Right. And this was very much the case as far as the Premier League was concerned. Um, there had been attempts um, of some sort of breakaway a few years earlier. I think we had a big five uh, at the time, and that big five included Everton, but I think it ex- certainly excluded Manchester City. I think yeah, it yeah. might have excluded Spurs as well. Um, and there had been attempts to change football. And, and then a group of club owners who were frustrated with the attitude of, of many of their peer group, who were very suspicious of television, um, were totally opposed to any involvement in terms of selling international rights. Um, they just said, well, we'll go off down our end of the street and we will create this. They were aware of the the potential arising from subscription TV, which was very embryonic in those days. Um, and they they therefore decided to create their own competition, which would give them more control. It would reduce the control of the Football Association. It would reduce the control of the Football League. They felt it would be a leaner organisation, more adept at making decisions. And that would allow it to to make progress and, and to make more money. Football clubs made money in the 80s and 90s quite often. You know, I've, I've, I've been on Company's House since Sparrow Fart this morning. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I've been looking at the numbers. And yes, they didn't have a lot of money coming in, but they had a lot of control over costs. There was uh, the, the, the negotiating position that we see today um, didn't exist to the same extent in the sense that clubs were pre-Bosman. Yeah, and, and that was a seismic change as far as the the balance of power between player and uh, and club was concerned. So that's if they could effectively you know force players to to retain the clubs and, and, and so on. Um, so it, it was it was a strange beast football, yeah, and, and we loved it because we knew no different, and you, you still went. Um, but it, it, I'll be honest, it, it, it wasn't pleasant. Certainly, as an away fan, mm. you know, and I'm, I've, I've been because I've lived in Manchester since since 1980. Yeah, practically every match for me was an away match, and 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 you had to be on your toes. I don't, that's a, I mean, I, I'm not nostalgic in life generally, but as a football fan, all football fans are nostalgic. They, uh, so you have to remind yourself when you catch an episode of the big match revisited. You go, yeah, the kits were great. The pictures were shit. That was all part of the the, the fun, but it wasn't fun at the time. Like you say, getting there and getting out, you you literally took your life in your hands at some stage, and it wasn't a glamorous product at all. And and certainly during the eighties, the government waged uh, permanent war on football fans, basically who they perceived mainly as working class, and as a kind of trade union substitute as well. Sometimes, so the politics around football were ugly. Before we talk about the, the broadcasting deal in detail, Kieran, there the are two things I'm really interested in. Where, a, where was the FA in all of this? And B, was there, as part of this plan for a new Premier League, were they going to financially support the the rest of the league as well? Or, or was this simply pulling up the ladder? Um, probably the worst decision ever made in the history of English football. At, at the 
sort of the end of 91, 92, sort of the w- final worse, scene. Worse than Crystal Palace appointing Alan Mullery as manager, Kieran. <laughs> oh, oh far that. worse, far worse. Like, yeah, that, that was, that, that didn't last very long. That's um, true. It was never going to last it, long, Kieran. He <laughs> didn't last very long the second time he came back to Brighton either. Good. So, yeah. um, and uh, what what happened was that the, the Premier League said, well, we're going to negotiate a deal. We're quite happy to negotiate on your behalf, uh, as far as the other 72 clubs were concerned. And, and there was still a commitment to promotion and relegation because there, it was seen that relegation is actually a good force for football because it keeps interest going. Um, if, if we go back to the, uh, the, the very start, th- there wasn't a lot of difference. I, I, I was looking at uh, some clubs in, in what we now refer to as the championship were generating more money than clubs in the Premier League, which oh, wow. today is, is completely unheard of. I, oh, I was looking yeah. at uh, Sunderland's accounts, for example, in, in, uh, in 91, 92. They made more money than uh, – sorry, it's in 92, 93. They were, they were in the Championship. They made more money than Norwich. And Norwich – yeah, Norwich were a fantastic team at the start of the Premier League. Um, so it, it was a completely different beast. But the clubs in the EFL, because – they weren't really at the table in terms of making decisions. Um, they they threw their toys out of the pram and they said, "No, we, we don't want anything." And initially, the, the Premier League had said, "Look, we'll we'll do a global TV deal, and we will split it seventy five twenty five, as far as yeah, the, the Premier League would keep the the seventy five percent, the EFL would have twenty five, and you know, and any growth you'll you'll share in that." And the clubs in the EFL said, nah, don't fancy that. And since then, yeah, and this is why it is the, the worst decision. Since then, the Premier League TV rights have increased in value by 5,695% compared to 245% wow. in the EFL. Wow. That's what they've missed out on. And that's what they're trying to get back now. And, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of, Kylie asking me out for a date 30 years ago. And I said, no, nah, no, Kylie, I'll, I'll pass if you don't mind. And me now turning around 30 years later. Yeah, assuming, let's assume that I'd never met the Baroness, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah me finding up Kylie, not I've got a number. And saying, uh, yeah, Kylie, yeah, you know, you know, I turned you down 30 years ago. Uh, we'd like to reconsider. <laughs> even, even in the imaginary world, Kieran, it's hard to imagine that Kylie's number is still the same. Yes. And then, although I still I love the idea of Kylie being somewhere in Australia, the phone going and going, oh, my God, it's Maguire. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the FA brief, uh, it's what's interesting, Kieran, that you talk about some championship clubs had um, be- bigger income than Premier League clubs initially. Because when the, the idea of the Premier League was first floated, or when we first found out about it, there was an assumption from a lot of quarters, including the media, that this would be... 22 clubs at the time, was it? 20, these would be invited to join the Premier League rather than what happened was the, the clubs that finished in the first division then became the clubs in the Premier League because it didn't seem to make a lot of sense when you had big clubs like Sunderland not being there. But the FA, briefly, before we talk about that broadcasting deal, they, they kind of didn't do anything at all, really. It didn't seem to occur to them that this was the first step towards them eventually losing control of football as they eventually will because it's inevitable that the Premier League it's taken them longer than 
was forecast, but the Premier League is pretty much going to be running football, you guess, within five years. Yes, I mean the the FA has become increasingly marginalised, and and it and it still does a lot of good things at grassroots. You know, in terms Absolutely. of women's football, it's it's presently responsible, but I'm not sure that it will be responsible in five years. I can see the pro see the Premier League um, taking over there as well. Um, yeah, the, the the FA. Yeah, I, I know it's sort of stereotypical, but they they were the suits and the blazers. Yeah, then and so, yeah, it, it was. It was all about making sure that they, they they all got a pair of tickets for the FA Cup final. Um, you know, attended a few meetings, uh, chomped on their cigars, and, and that was it. You know, there was there was a lack of vision. There was a lack of uh, having a time horizon and, and thinking about developing the game. And and English football was a complete mess. Yeah, you know, we, we were banned from Europe. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I know these days there are some people that quite like the idea of having nothing to do with Europe, um, and that's not proven <laughs> to be particularly good, as we know from an yeah. economic point of view. Well, well, we were banned, and yeah, yeah, I've got to say, rightly so, because the the, the behaviour was an embarrassment. Oh, no. Do you know what, Kieran? I wish English clubs were still banned from Europe. You know why. <laughs> Well, for twenty three, twenty four, I can see you. I can see why you think of that. Yes, yes. Whilst whilst I'm looking at the Uzbekistan metro map in three months' time, you'll be you'll be sticking pins in a straw dolly of me. I know, I know it works. With with hindsight, Kieran, um, it, it it's transparent. It's, it's evident, of course, that the broadcasting deal was crucial in all this. It was the broadcasting deal that changed the face of English football. <laughs> But initially, it, it wasn't uh, Rupert Murdoch and B Sky B that were driving this. It was ITV, uh, specifically LWT, which was ITV's weekend uh, franchise that were driving this. And I was astonished, Kieran, that the ITV deal from 1988 to 1992, and remember that there was a, t- a period of two whole years in the 80s, Kieran, when there was no football on TV mm-hmm. at all, no mm-hmm. highlights, not even highlights. And on the at the end of the news, when they would talk about what happened in the, the day's football, they would show photographs of goals. There was actually no football at all. But for the, the TV deal between 1988 and 1992, ITV paid £44 million. Yes. Which, yeah. I mean, again, I've, I've used the phrase before, it beggars belief. That's all football was worth. And even, it, it, of course, that's a lot of money. But even those days, for, that, for, the, for the rights to show English football for four years, they paid... Ten million pound a year, eleven million pound a year. It's incredible, isn't it? What the change was. So, how? What was the initial um, B Sky B deal worth then? In that first year of the Premier League, do we know? Well, yes, the B Sky B paid three hundred and four million pounds for a five-year deal. So that worked out as sixty million a year. Wow. Um, so it it was a significant step up, but also in that five-year period, um, the the international rights were worth precisely zero. It actually well, cost it cost the Premier League money to actually get the the signals out to the overseas markets, and I think the smartest decision that they made, and you've got to give the people at the Premier League at the time a lot of credit, was that they went to Thailand, they went to Nigeria, they went to Australia, and said, "We've got this product. We think it's really good. Tell you what, you have it for nothing." And come back in five years' time and tell us what you what your what your viewers think. So they gave it away, and everybody loved it. And you know, it was a th- you know, we were in that sort of Britpop, 
uh, era, you know, Euro 1960, you know, Skinner and Badil and, and so on, and all of that, you know, fantasy football had arrived along with. And, and football started to transform in terms of the demographics of people who were watching. It became much broader. Um, it started to be discussed. I, I, I can remember buying news, newspapers such as The Times in the early 80s, and there'd be no mention of football whatsoever. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and that's what people aren't familiar with, yeah. that you know, it, it, it wasn't the driver of clicks and views um, and, and page interests that it is today. Um, so there has been a significant transformation. But that, that £304 million in the first five years, um, you know, that worked out as £60 million a year. Uh, it, it's now something like £3 billion. So you know, it, it has been very, uh, very accelerated. And uh, the, the Premier League was was was. Sometimes it's it's important to be first, and and the Premier League is certainly leveraged off the back of that. You use the word product there, Kieran. The actual product itself didn't change drastically. Football didn't suddenly get better. Most of the players within the game were still uh, UK based. You had games on a Monday night. You had a few half-hearted flares and fireworks and a couple of freezing cold uh, cheerleaders. But the, the product, the, the, the big change came with the wall-to-wall fixture changes, basically, when that started to happen a couple of seasons in. And that's where some of the opposition started to the Premier League. Arsene Wenger, for example, very shortly after he arrived at Arsenal in the 90s, said that football had sold its soul to Sky and allowing TV to dictate fixtures was shaking hands with the devil. But... There wasn't that much opposition to the the idea of the Premier League, was there, from within football? No, because if you, again, if you if you look at that very first TV deal with Sky, there was only sixty matches a season. Was there? Yeah. So so that was you know one match. Sometimes you might have two matches at the weekend, and you go, "Wow, this is this is Whoa, yeah. uh, this is a bit rock and roll, isn't it?" Um, so so initially, the, the Premier League itself was not convinced that broadcasting matches live would be good for football in the sense of, well, will fans actually turn up to a tent if they can go and watch it in the comfort of their own home? And you know, today, it, it's we, we look at that with sort of a, a bit of you know, quaint, my God, they must have been simple people in the 1990s, <laughs> uh, yeah. given that there's so much demand for tickets. You know, the, the Premier League is is selling out practically every match. But that, that first season, you look at some of the attendances of, of clubs in the Premier League, and, and I've got I've got the Premier League table in, in front of me. Um, and yeah, we, we talk about the the big six. Well, there was only one of the big six who finished in the top five of the Premier League. You know, Arsenal were 10th, Chelsea were 11th, Spurs were 8th, Manchester City 9th. Uh, you know, that- yeah, let's, let's not go any further down the table, Kieran, if we're stay, <laughs> stay where Stay where you are at the moment. It's, 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 fairly, it's a phrase we use a lot, but it's fairly typical Palace that this Pandora's box full of money came along and we got relegated out of <laughs> yes. it at the, very, at the very first opportunity. It's only a kick. A jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. 
Adidas. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. So it was, it, it was, it was a completely different vehicle and what we then saw was the broadcasters realized that uh, they, they were dipping their toes we remember you know sky and b sky b they, they were spending a fortune on the movies well it turned out that people weren't particularly bothered about the movies and they started switching off the one thing that stopped the, the, the one thing that stopped subscribers from switching off their boxes was the premier league rights mm. so when they came up for renewal we, we started to see the money start to expand, and uh, you know the, the Premier League has has got a symbiotic relationship with the broadcasters. You know, football needs Sky, and Sky needs football, and they've worked extremely well together um, since since it started in ninety two, ninety three. So, if we agree, Kieran, that uh, for those of us at the time, it, it was initially an interesting novelty. Shall we say? And, mm. and when you look yeah. back at when you look back at some of those early games, you think, "Oh my God, did we? Was that? It's, you know, it's, it's so different." And you, you, one thing you can't argue with about Sky's coverage is that the actual coverage of the games is is superb. It's fantastic, and that's it, it wasn't necessarily so in terms of the amount of cameras and the amount of shots and the amount of punditry right back at the start. But when can you pinpoint a year, Kieran, or a season when this interesting novelty? actually turned English football into what was going to become the richest league in the world? Was there a, a moment when you, you thought, hang on a second, the potential here is huge? Was there a year when the broadcasting deal jumped so highly that you kind of thought football's never going to be the same again? Well, in terms of where um, the Premier League, uh, you and I both remember the Olympics and David Coleman and... Uh, his, I think it was in the 800, the Cuban runner in the 800 metres. And David Coleman goes, and Juan Torino opens his legs and shows his class. And he just streaked ahead of the opposition. Well, well, that really happened in, in actually 2014. I mean, the Premier League was already successful. It as, doubled as, in terms of... As late as that, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it, it overall doubled its revenues in 2007. So in, in 1997, and it doubled them again. Um and it was doing okay, but there was still there were still bumps in the road, you know, because the ITV sport had come and gone. And I appreciate that was the that was an EFL problem rather yeah. than a Sky problem. And then we had similar issues with Satanta. When BT Sport uh, was created, they decided 
they were going to start, they were going to park their guns on Sky's lawn. So in 2014, the value of the rights went up by 70%. And in 2017, they went up by 20%. Sorry, sorry by, by 70% as well. Um, and, and that really accelerated the Premier League away. I mean, La Liga and the Bundesliga have been doing pretty well themselves. There's, there was no doubt about that. Um, and I think also sort of during the course of the last decade, um, we have seen the rise and the rise of the international rights to such an extent that they now exceed the value of the Premier League rights. Um, so I would probably say around about a decade ago that the Premier League were ahead, but they were ahead by you know perhaps 20% over La Liga. And then those deals came through and now the Premier League generates twice as much from broadcasting as La Liga, as Bundesliga and, and Syria. Um, and that is that gap is only going to it's in, in percentage terms it might knock down a bit, but certainly in in actual monetary terms it's only going to get bigger. And, and the reason for that, and again, you give credit to the Premier League for going out to those international markets, is that um, foreign viewers tend to follow the Premier League above the other European leagues. I want to come on to that in just a moment, Kieran, but I, I realised when I was asking you that last question, I have a terrible habit of asking the same question in four different ways. I could have I could have just asked you the question, but I liked, it's, I think, I'm coming to the conclusion, Kieran, I like the sound of my own voice. It's, it's a terrible admission, isn't it? You, you mentioned the Bundesliga and La Liga. What was the initial response, Kieran, from the other top footballing nations in Europe? Did they look on bemused? Were they threatened right from the start? Or, or did they change their, their attitude to broadcasting deals way too late to make any difference? Um, I think originally they, they were fairly sniffy because um, the UK, you know, we, we remember the, the UK being the sick man of Europe in, in the early 70s when we yeah. were growing up as kids. And that's why we originally joined the, um, you know, the EEC. Yeah, I, I, I just about remember it in 1972 because there used to be a stamp collector and we had some special EEC stamps coming out. Yeah, the, the, I, I, was, I was rock and roll then, in, of course, just as yeah. much as I am now. Well, I was going to say, the only reason I really re- take, remember taking notice of it over the time as a kid was because there was a game at Wembley between the the three and the six. Yeah. The, the, the six nations that were already in the common market, so to speak, played against the three nations that were about to join. That's my one abiding memory of politics at the time. I wish I'd taken more notice, Kieran, because I'm, well, actually, I don't, so I'd probably be even more angry now, but carry on. <laughs> um. So the, you and I remember the glamour of Italian football. Remember when, when Paul Gascoigne went to Lazio and Gary Lineker went to Barcelona, as did Mark Hughes and yeah. David Platt. And so, you know, it was Italy was the place to be and yeah. then Spain was the place to be. And I, I think to a certain extent, they fell asleep at the wheel. Right. Um, they thought, yeah, this is going to last forever. And, and, and like all empires, you, if, if that is your attitude and you don't keep working at it, then then you can be overtaken. Um, and I think there was a, there was a degree of arrogance that, you know, and, and we've always, I think we've always had a bit of an inferiority complex towards Spanish and Italian football because the kits always looked better than ours, and the players certainly tended to look. Better than ours, uh, and, and so on. You know, in terms of their technical ability, because yeah, the English game was built on, yeah, you know, was was based on hard work and 
and, and running up and down. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you mentioned Arsene Wenger earlier, but, you know, the, the transformation he made at Arsenal in terms of sports science and diet and so on, they, that was completely alien. You know, yeah. You and I, we can both remember being out on a, on a Saturday night and, and the players would be in the same bars as us. Yeah. And I don't drink, but yeah, the yeah. players would be, the players would be knocking it back. And, yeah. and that was seen as completely normal. And, you know, I, I can remember sort of, sort of, getting sort of shoot annuals and Bobby Moore say, yeah, I'd have three or four pints uh, at a night before <laughs> training, but then I'd just run it off yeah. the following morning. And we'll go, oh, that's, that's, that's pretty good running it off. Yeah. That's, that's how football works. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's how, that's very sensible. Um, and now of course there is a complete change uh, in terms of you know, diet and fitness and, and, and so on. So uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it was a different animal we were slow to react. I think the there were some progressive owners of clubs who brought in more foreign players and foreign managers, and that transformed the game. I remember Ian Wright saying um, the first away trip that Arsenal had with Arsene Wenger, who they were already bemused by, he wouldn't let them have ketchup on their chips on the train because of the amount of sugar in ketchup, which he said the players didn't like. And then the next away journey, he wouldn't let them have chips. So at least he's phased it in gradually. But in terms of TV coverage at the time, there was a time, Kieran, where Channel 4's coverage of Italian football was way cooler than Sky's coverage of the Premier League. I mean, certainly for a a certain degree of hipster fan, that James Richardson's brilliant presentation of Italian football was was considered the thing to watch. And and even even then, even two or three years into the, the Premier League, it still wasn't cool, but that's about to change. And let's talk about that change, Kieran. And let's talk to someone who surprisingly has vivid memories of the time. James <laughs> Brown, who was editor of the legendary Loaded magazine, which started in 1994, and probably did as much as anyone to help change the image of English football from 1994 onwards. I, I did start making notes during this interview, Kieran, as I usually do, but my wrist started aching 20 minutes in. So we'll just listen to it and riff off the back of it. Here's what James had to say. James, thank you so much for talking to us. I am going to try really hard to concentrate on the matter in hand, the changing face of football culture in the early 90s. But if you do have any stories about Peter Ridsdale and Solid Goldfish, feel free to share them and we will discuss. Of course. All right. Uh, James, the Premier League... I have many, by the way. I I was hoping that would be the answer, and I was going to say I was hoping to tease them out of you, but in my experience, you don't need to tease stories out of you, James. They they volunteer themselves. Um, The the Premier League was about 18 months old when Loaded began, a magazine of blessed memory. Was... In your in your memory, was the Premier League already part of the new mood of optimism, or were were you an essential part of making the Premier League cool? Well, I don't know if we made it cool. I think I think the most significant change it, it wasn't so much that it had become the Premier League; it was the the introduction of the playoffs, which were really ungainly because they had the bottom team in the Premier League playing in top three. Or maybe no, the there was some yeah, well, the, 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 the third, third bottom team. Yeah, and they played in the, against the championship teams or League One or whatever Division One, whatever it was still called then. 
And, you know, Leeds didn't get through because we got beaten by the team. I think it was, it was Charlton or something, the team that were in that top division. I was we, there. We, we were trying to get up. And that, that was really, it kind of felt like it was unfair, really. It was sort of, so that, that, was, that was, I think, the most specific difference in terms of live games. And, and then the bigger difference, given that only affected a few teams, was the introduction of, of live televised football. And I remember... I don't know how soon to Sky or B Sky B or, or British Satellite Broadcasting, and when there were kind of two different companies that joined together. But when it when it first came out, somehow the block of flats I was living in in London managed to get it for free, <laughs> and some I think somebody in the building had, had bought it, and and then we just discovered, you know, flicking through the channels that we could get this thing. And the first week I remember watching. They didn't really have a lot of content, and there was a Don Johnson film and Sheffield United versus someone else. And, <laughs> and these, this film with Virginia Madsen and Don Watson, Don uh, Don Johnson from Miami Vice, and this Sheffield United game would be on twice a get, twice a day for the week. <laughs> and and you know then there'd be nothing on for a little bit, and they think, oh, that's that, that match is on again tomorrow. I'll watch it. So I must have watched that game three or four times, and and the novelty of having live football was um, really attractive, really, you know, even if it was just a team that you didn't support. Uh, and I think that was the biggest change that suddenly, you know, for, for me particularly living in London, not having to travel 200 miles to watch a game of football live, that that was um, that, that was the first big difference. And then I think when Loaded came along, I wanted to create a magazine that mixed football and music because I'd had a successful career, you know, working in the, in the music press at NME. And at that time, everybody in the music industry, because they didn't want to talk about who they were signing or how their acts were going, everybody just bonded over talking about football. And, you know, uh, there was just this massive, fast take-up of, of, of live TV and and then obviously at the weekend with in the early days of Sky Soccer Saturday it was real legends you know it wasn't people like Letizia it was like Bobby Moore and George Best yeah. and Rodney Marsh and, and and it was fascinating I remember watching Best talk about the hardest fullback he ever played against and he said it was Paul Reaney at Leeds so you kind of it wasn't so much let's just talk about the games that are on these these true era defining legends were uh, were talking about their careers as well. Frank McClintock was the number one. And, and and that was interesting as well, getting to see these people who you might normally just catch a glimpse of historically in shoot or in best case in the tabloids. Um, so Sky or B-Sky B or whatever it was actually started giving us access to football, footballers talking about football in a way that they'd never been before. Um, and at Loaded, I just wanted to interview footballers, like I'd interviewed bands at the enemy. And it was a little bit strange for the footballers at first because they were either very relaxed um, or they were too relaxed. And we had no interest in, in stitching them up. But suddenly they were, being, they were being interviewed in a style how we would have interviewed musicians. And we were just printing what they were saying. We weren't giving them copy approval. And so there were times when they said things that then, I mean, remember Robbie Fowler and uh, Steve McManaman getting hold of the journalist's tape recorder when he, went to the, when he went to the toilet 
and started leaving filthy jokes on it. <laughs> he, only, he only heard them when he was transcribing the tape. And and then, I mean, he just put it in the piece. It was an innocuous, there were a couple of innocuous, they weren't that bad taste uh, uh, jokes. And Liverpool went ballistic with him, <laughs> with, with, with the two of them. And they were going, oh, we've been taken out of context and all that. But it, it just... It was a different time, and suddenly we were—you know—we would do four pages on Gary Speed, or or five pages on on, on Shearer and, and players like that, and they'd never really been interviewed in depth, you know, because yeah. something like Shoot would just be like a little questionnaire. The tabloids just wanted a couple of sound bites about the next game, um, and what we found very soon was the players really, really wanted to be inloaded. Um, because one, it was a fun environment to be in. Two, they all read it. You know, we we we, yeah, did, yeah. we 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 kind of still occasionally had to pay people for interviews, but this was predating when players had the mo- you know the modern level of sponsorship and and, and and brand ambassador positions. And I think the first player I remember doing that was John Terry with King of Shaves. So so at that point. You know, you might get some players. I think we interviewed Lee Sharp and um, Steve Stone and then a couple of others at the launch of a, a football manager or something like that. So it was, it was, it, it wasn't easy to get hold of them. But then when we did, they were very keen and they'd tell their mates and give 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 us you know other players' numbers and so on. And 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 it, so it was you know it was just a different thing for them. And certainly yeah. as writers, it was a different thing for us. I used to I used to like those lunchtimes on Sky when George Best obviously hadn't turned up and you could see them hastily putting a microphone on Phil Thompson yeah. to sit him down instead. People forget about Loaded, I think, James. It, it, it wasn't at all sneery. It wasn't even sort of postmodern ironic. It, it was a, a, a joyful, upbeat magazine. So did you make, before you started uh, Loaded... Did you make a conscious decision that you were going to celebrate football, that you were going to yes. talk about the best things about football rather than just – because it was still a time, you know, Italian 90 notwithstanding, the, the, the mainstream press was still very anti-football. So was that a conscious decision on your part to, to try Absolutely. and change that? Absolutely. Not not just football, but I'd worked on the NME, which was which was a very cynical place. You know, we thought we yeah, were yeah. better than the readers. We thought we were better than the bands. We were rude and dismissive as, as often as we were championing new acts. And, and I just wanted Loaded to be like a fanzine, really, just very, very positive. We never had any negative things because I couldn't see the point of writing a page, slagging somebody off, when we could give a dedicate a page to something that people loved and, and telling the readership about. And it's not so much that Loaded's been forgotten as that initial three-year period when I was editing it has been overshadowed by, you know, the dive downhill of that whole market sector to just stick girls with their hands over their tits on the cover. And that's why in my book I deliberately put as many covers as I could on the on the inside covers. <laughs> and showing people like Gazza and Frank Skinner and Vic Reeves and and Will Carling and, and, and Uma Thurman and people like that. Um, but I think... You know, we, I mean, the three or four sort of football writers who were on the staff and I, we just loved meeting footballers. It was very exciting. Um, and they were a lot more interesting than they'd ever been given the platform to show before because, as I said, you know, the, 
the local reporters and the tabloid journalists didn't want more than a couple of bland sound bites. But but some of them were great. And I a lot of the players that I wanted to feature were also the sort of players that looked like the ones that would be fun in the squad. So people like Peter Beagre at Manchester City, Steve Claridge. I mean, these are people that, that later developed profiles for themselves in, in sort of broadcasting. But at the time... Before Lowe did, I remember once reading an interview with Gary Lineker when he was kind of squeaky clean England captain in in Arena magazine, which was a sort of a fashion mag for men. But you you just, in these magazines like GQ and Arena Esquire, you never saw any football. It was like blokes and and women, you know, some women were were playing football back then or or going to games. It's like that audience didn't exist. So that was for us was a really really quick win with the readers. They identified that you know we kind of understood what the mass you know sort of the mass market of, of our readership w- were into. You know, you were you were uh, for want of a better word, you were a proper football fan at the time. You you're you still are uh, a huge Leeds fan. So you were immersed in football from a very young age. Were you just caught up with the excitement of the new Premier League or was there a part of you then that thought this this might be the start of football being taken away from this, its traditional working class fan base, that this is going to become all about money? Or, or, or at the time, did it just seem like a good thing for football? Um, well, I don't think that actually happened for a long, long time. I think the modern era is well removed from that initial... <clears throat> that initial change. I mean, as I said, the best thing about it was the broadcasting allowed you to watch so much more football. As as a kid, I never saw live football on television apart from the FA yeah. Cup, the FA Cup, and the home internationals, which is something I'd love to see brought back. So, so it was. It felt like you know, although the the, the top division was reduced to twenty two and then twenty, it felt like there were obviously less games at that level, but more. To, to watch. And also the other thing is 1991 or 1990, if you support Manchester City, you're never actually going to, apart from the two games, if you go away and watch from at home, you're never actually going to see the, the live opposition. So to be able to watch the other great stars of the day, like, like Gaza or, or, or whoever, w- was a good thing, you know. Um, I think... I think one of the first times you realised that football was slightly changing was when, like, you'll be able to tell me what year this was, or when Brian Clough was furious that Roy Keane won, sorry, that Stuart Pearce wanted £8,000 a week. Yeah. And he, and he told him he wasn't going to give him it. And there, there was, you know, there was, they obviously found a compromise. But you think about that now, I mean, it's probably £8,000 an hour they're on or something. <laughs> I mean, you know, really, I mean, so, you know, so I think, you know, I'm sure Luke Shaw, you know, the, the current England left-back, is on far more than Stuart Pearce was pro rata. Um, and I, so I don't, th- to answer your question, I don't think there was a sense of it being taken away. But I also think the way football is nowadays, that if people genuinely believe that that the football has become a different different thing and, and you know and it's expensive to take the kids there. That is true, but you have just so much more access through social media and through live broadcasting or, or you know getting VPNs and watching football around from around the world. And there's all of these community clubs now. 
You know, anybody who thinks football is too middle class should go and watch, you know, Orient or Grimsby or, you know, Carlisle or, you know, or even drop down a level below that. Those clubs desperately need your money. Um, and obviously, that's flippant if you only want to support the team you support. But it feels like a lot of the moaning comes from the people in the top half of the Premier League. It's it's not flippant, James. Actually, because one that one of the things we've been doing recently, well, right from the start of the pod, we've always championed football at every level. And recently, we've talked. To, I know so many Premier League fans, so many Palace fans who have given up their season ticket at Palace and have started to go to places like Sutton. Now, Storms is taking over Croydon Athletic. They'll start going places like there. There's there, there's a growing awareness, I think, of of football at lower level, and I think a lot of that is to do with it reminds people of what football was like when they first started going, when we first started going in the, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, but also, you know, I remember when Forest Green Rovers, when Vince Dale first took over, I was talking to some fans from other... I was applauding the changes he was making. And yeah. fans, fans from other teams, I remember having a conversation with like some Tranmere fans on Twitter, they're going, it's not fair on the rest of us. But football is, you know, the football pyramid in one way, needs a, masses and masses of more uh, investment from higher up the pyramid for the health of the game so you can discover these next generation of players without having to pay fortunes for them. But also, if you look at Brentford or Bournemouth or Brighton and you think about where they were 15 years ago, you know, all, all three of them, either without games or on the verge of, not not Brentford, but like certainly Brighton and, but I remember seeing Bright, Bournemouth fans outside Ellen Road with buckets. Yeah. You know, and, and everybody chipping in, you know, putting their loose change in to sort of help out a fellow football team. But the reality was, if you were Ellen Road in 1994, 1995, whenever, you weren't going to be playing Bournemouth. We didn't, you didn't think that within 20 years that, that they'd be higher up in the league than us. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I think it was um, – I think the major changes in football have been really a lot more more recent and, and that actually that change in the early 90s was, was, was pretty much a good thing. And I think we were talking before we started recording about – I've just been in Japan for a while. And if you actually go to, to football in other countries, particularly like the developed countries, you know, the ones that really take their sport seriously – the drop-off between what was, for instance, what's on offer for fans if you go to the you know, New York City um, Stadium or if you go to the Yokohama Stadium compared to what we get offered at Ellen Road, it's just <laughs> it's a different... It's a, I'm not talking about the football, I'm talking about the fan experience of yeah. you know, being able to buy a decent bite to eat or the price of getting into the game or being able to buy merchandising during the game you know, within the stadium. And there's still masses and masses to be done to, to sort of bring it up to the level where the fans are treated, you know, in a way that the, the price of the tickets that, you know, they deserve to be. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. 
Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Did it feel to you back in 94 like the first time that musicians and artists really wanted to associate themselves with football? Because that's the one thing I used to, I was quite curmudgeonly in those days and I would reloaded. And as somebody used to travel up and down the country being mistreated in various ways by police or other fans in the 70s, you'd, you'd read the keyboard player from the spiral carpet saying, yeah, I followed Grimsby every, every home and away game. And he used to think, did you? Did you really? But suddenly, for the first time, it seemed like people were flocking out of the woodwork to associate themselves with football, whereas in years gone by, they would do the exact opposite. I think um, I think what it is, is there's, there's a lot of people in music who has, I mean, this, this would absolutely apply to me, you know, and, and bands that I know were absolutely huge football fans as kids. And then as they got into their late teens, you know, when I was 18, I would buy it, or 17, I'd spend my money going to a gig um, as opposed to going to Ellen Road. And I think that, mm. that that music is something that allows you to meet girls or boys, if whatever you're into, you know, it becomes a social thing. No one's going to find love on the terraces at Burnden Park, you know, that they, they were going to find it in the local disco or a gig or a club. And I think, so I think... When you come to the point of getting, particularly, you know, in the age we're talking about, trying to get a career or a way out of, of, of you know, what looked like dreary unemployment, the, the idea of being in a band was, was a lot more accessible than the idea of becoming a professional footballer, mm. which, you know, 99.9% of us were never going to do. Whereas anybody could pick up a guitar or start singing and, if you've got somebody who can do a half-decent sleeve and somebody who can write a half-decent song, John Peel and the NME and the fanzine scene and, and, and so on, you know, would be out there looking and listening for you. So I think there was a lot of that. Um, I also think as individual clubs do better, more people from the past reassociate themselves with, with the club. I mean... You know, I didn't go to Leeds much between in the, in the late 80s, mainly because my dream was to go and get in a van with the Colt and drive around California. <laughs> you know, I'd, I would be spending a Saturday night in Belgium with that petrol emotion and the, and the Jesus and Mary chain, you know, in a, watching a gig or in Berlin with a band, you know. Um, so I think that's probably what was happening. I think it was just as, as if you go back to that time, Arsenal was successful. Leeds came up. Sheffield Wednesday were a pretty good team. Ipswich were doing yeah. pretty well. Blackburn obviously got the you know the absolutely insane investment. There were, I remember watching Rob Newman and David Baddiel on there. They had a kind of I don't even remember there was a kind of like a 
a football comedy show. And and the actor, Simon O'Brien, he co-presented it with them. Yeah. I remember them putting on flat caps. I remember them mocking the idea that Blackburn were going to get all of this money. And um, so I I just think it's that. I think think as clubs re-emerge and do well, it, it was an opportunity for for maybe slightly lapsed or distant. I mean, you know, if you if, you, if this comes back to what I said at the very beginning, if you can suddenly watch football on television all the time, and you're not a match going fan, it makes it easier to re-engage with your team. Yeah, I remember taking Rob Newman to a, a Palace game once, uh, and afterwards, all my mates in the pub said, "Don't bring him again." Because he was just so intense, he just wanted to talk about how football was a parent substitute and and how, how it replaced. And they just didn't want that sort of conversation. You've also made Kieran, you've made Kieran very happy because not only have you mentioned John Peel and the Jesus and Mary chain, you mentioned Love on the Terraces, which is one of his favourite yeah. songs. Before um, I talk about you and Leeds. Can you remember who won the World Cup of breakfast cereals? Because I get really cross when people go, have you seen that World Cup of crisps? What a brilliant idea. It's like, no, Lodi did that in, yeah. in, in yeah. the mid-90s. I can't remember who won the breakfast cereal, but i tell you what we did. When we did the World Cup of breakfast cereals, that was actually filmed for a huge, like the entertainment channel in America. Really? They, were making, they were doing a... It was like, you know, the North America, I don't know if it was a Canadian-based or, or, or US-based... The E Channel, they came in and did a little bit of footage about the success of this new mass market men's magazines. Uh, and I always wondered what that must have looked like if you were sitting in America watching these guys <laughs> sitting in Frosties <laughs> and Sugar Pops trying to work out which was the best. I don't, I don't remember, but um, I think the thing with Loaded was I was very conscious of the downtime that we spent when the pubs closed early on the journeys to and from football matches. Uh, and my mate, Johnny Owen, who's a, a film producer and he's, he's on talk sports sometimes now. I know Johnny very well. It's lovely. Yeah, man. I remember Johnny saying to me when I got, first got to know him that he and his mates would go away on holidays, you know, sort of lads holidays or when they were going away with Cardiff and they'd have their, the two things they would have was their head bags. Remember those sort of circular. Yeah of uh, sausage, sausage-shaped leather or faux leather sports bags, head, H-E-double-D, and a copy of Loaded. And, you know, I, I was sort of – I think about that when I get on the trains and everybody's just looking at their phones about the days when I used to get on trains or planes or, or just go in the pub and you'd see people laughing at things that two weeks before me and my mates would have been sort of laying out or writing or, or laughing at ourselves when we first read the stories. Johnny's really interesting about what he calls the unique uh, culture of Cardiff City. But tell us about your own personal relationship with football, James, and what you call your long-term dysfunctional relationship with Leeds United. Well, as I put <clears throat> as I put in my my book, I had quite an unusual uh, experience as a child because you know I was born in London. We went back to Leeds. My dad had made a bit of money working for Lions Maid and. Uh, testing ice creams and where we moved to in Leeds was where the footballers still live to this day so we lived in this posh village called Collingham for a few years and my neighbour was Alan Clark who, oh, wow. at, who, at, who at the time was the Leeds United and England centre forward and 
so that was like, and, and I genuinely was in and out of their house. My mum was friends with his wife. Um, so the connection, you know, he took my autograph off into the, you know, into the club and came back with all of the Riviera players' wow. signatures. And then just when Leeds, when I was a kid, Leeds were the best team in the, in, in the country. They, um, you know, between 1965 and 1975, we won more points and got to more finals than anyone else. And we didn't, sadly, we didn't win as many finals as we'd liked. So, so when the best team in the country is your local team, so when I moved to Headingley in about 1971 or 72 or something, maybe younger, 71, all me and my mates did um, after school until it went dark and then beyond that until we were called in was play football in the streets against, if you watched the test match last week, you see those rows of, of red brick terraces. That's where I grew up, beyond the Kirkstall Lane end, uh, uh, the cricket ground. And it was, and you know, we were all Brenner or Lorimer or Eddie Gray or Alan Clark, and um, you know, in '74 World Cup, England didn't qualify, but Scotland did. Yeah. So we were able to watch the likes of of Lorimer and Jordan and and uh, you know, and, and Billy Bremner and so on. So very much Scotland felt like our team as an international team around that time. Um, and it was just, you know, I imagine if you're a, you're a kid and you're a Manchester City fan now or, you know, if you go back to when Manchester United were the dominant, dominant team or when Chelsea had that period, you know, if, if you're a local kid at that time, it, it just must feel fantastic. You know, if, you're, if your hero is Kevin De Bruyne uh, and, you know, and you're getting to go and see him, it, it's going to stay with you for life. And that's, that's where I was and, you know... Um, there is, there is there is a real glamour about that Leeds team as well, especially when the the Admiral kit came along and the smiley badge and the sock tabs. But I also remember my dad, who was a proper Londoner, God rest his soul, he got really cross match of the day. Well, I think you beat Southampton 7-0. Yeah. And he was so cross because he said, fucking Leeds United taking the piss out of them. He, he thought they should have declared at five rather than... But they were yeah. a team of such... I remember you, you read, or well, you said in an interview that a lot of Don Revy's Leeds team is reflected in your in your personality. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, you've constantly been told, side before self, uh, get stuck in, attack is the best form of defence. And, and, you know, there was, even as a little kid, you kind of knew that Norman Hunter and Jack Charlton were hard men and that Bremner was, was you know, Bremner and Keegan, mm. <laughs> Bremner and Keegan were sent off for fighting. Uh-huh. It was actually Eddie, Eddie, I think it was Eddie Gray who chinned Keegan and knocked him over. In, so the, char- in the charity shield. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Did what, I don't know what I said there, but in the, in the charity shield. But yeah. Leeds was like a violent city growing up. You know, I can remember going into town and seeing the, you know, the mid-70s boot boys with their sort of scarves and their flares or, you know, I remember seeing one guy, Dungaree, no shirt, his scarf fell off and I picked it up and he ran back. Big flares, Doc Martins fighting. It was kind of, it, it wasn't like this. It, it wasn't this, you know, the most softest, softest place to grow up. So I just think that intensity that, that the team had and around them. But interestingly, years later, I was on a TV show in Tyne Tees with uh, Sid Waddell at the Great Darts commentary, <laughs> and Phil, Phil Thompson was there. And I said to Pitt, and he, I said, did you play against the Revy team? And he said, yeah. 
I said, what do you think about this emergence? It was Tim Lovejoy that started saying it about dirty leads, reusing that phrase. Yeah. And he said, leads were as dirty as anybody. It's just that it was all of them and they were all hard. And he said, the best comparison to what leads were like is Blackburn now. And that was a time, I think, when Mark Hughes was yeah. manager of, of Blackburn. And do you remember Arsenal never liked playing them because they were yeah. all a bit. And he said they were just, he said everybody was like that. But it's just, you know, even the nice guy, he said Eddie Gray was like the only one who would like, you know, kind of just waltzing around people. Whereas everybody else in that team w- would would get stuck in. And and actually, if you go back and watch the 1971 72 season, FA Cup final, which the centenary, which Leeds won. Peter Story Moore should have been arrested after seven minutes. I mean, he literally, you, you, you know, it's like, he just, he, he, I mean, I think it's Lorimer he takes out. I mean, it's the same, the irony of Lovejoy talking about Chelsea, you know, in that replay in the Leeds Chelsea FA Cup final, they literally take, they take out a hit on Eddie Gray. <laughs> right at the start, I know. I, I remember going to, uh, Ellen Road in 1976 in our cup run of blessed memory uh, when we were in the third division. And it's Palace. Yeah, it's Palace. And, and Leeds, so Leeds, <laughs> were, Leeds were just coming off the boil, but the atmosphere was terrifying. And Norman Hunter was on the subs bench and he came on halfway through the second half and the whole of the crowd was singing, Norman's going to get you. And every Palace fan, it took that per- We all thought they meant us individually. <laughs> We thought, Nor- and he was the most. I, it's still, I still talk about that now. Oddly enough, the other, the only other time I've been as intimidated was at a, a Cardiff game. But I remember that that these teams really well. Do you, do you have a James a relationship with with Peter Ridsdale at all? Because you've been quite critical of the financial impact he had on Leeds. Yeah, over the years. I, work, I actually um, I worked for the club when that was happening. But just oh, really? let, let let me come back to this just really quickly. When you mentioned Norman Hunter coming off the bench, then. I was reading about the introduction of substitutes. Yeah. And there was criticism because people were saying that Don Revy was making tactical substitutions and he was telling the players who were coming on and the players who were only on the pitch how to change the way they were playing. Oh, wow. Usually by bringing Paul Maidley or Mick Bates or whoever, if there was a first-team player who had been rested or coming back from an injury. Because in the beginning, the idea was you put a player on if there was an injury. and it, you, uh, So Revy was very much ahead of his time, you know, the idea of recognising that, that you particularly with a player like Maidley, who was so versatile. But to go forward to the Ridsdale time at Leeds, Peter just had a massive, massive ego. He'd been a failed singer. Maybe that's not fair. He'd, 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 he was in a band, I think, called Midnight Orange. <laughs> and that was – and at the beginning – there was a time when I think George Graham had left and, and the first thing Peter did, which at the time I thought was pretty good, at half time he walked down at White Hart Lane to the Leeds fans and talked about what was going on. But what he came to realise was that actually this became his de facto way of performing. Uh, and, you know, I had a friend, uh, um, it was at Leeds Bradford Airport, Yeadon as we call it, you know, the Leeds Bradford Airport, and Peter was talking at, as loud as he could into his phone about what was going on. And at that time when George was leaving the club, we went to the club where I was doing the, I started the club magazine in, in 98, I think. And uh, we were playing Maritimo 
Um, and we were out there on, on the island of Madeira and, and George had obviously told him, I'm definitely going to Spurs. And he came over to me and said, where's Hayden? Talking about Hayden Evans, who was one of the players' representatives. He looked after Gary Speed and David Batty and a few others. I said, why do you want him? He said, I've got to get him to sign Gordon Strachan to be the new coach. I really need to talk to him. It's like, what? There was, there was no need at that level of, of uh, seniority to be going around telling people their business. <laughs> and you know what? He could have picked the phone up and rang Hayden. But he, I think Peter's problem was, one, he wanted to be paid very well. And he, we were borrowing money from America, from investment funds and so on. And people like Eddie Gray and Brian Clough, they were on that half, I think, not sorry, Brian Clough, Brian Kidd. They were on such big, big wages as assistant coaches that what he did was he paid everyone close to him very, very well so nobody would question his own wages. And, you know, I think he was earning at the time they reported as the chairman far more than Martin Edwards was. But obviously Manchester United had started to win things after we gave them Cantona and the emergence of the, of the Beckham era youth team. Um so it was just, it, it, it became apparent it wasn't about the fans, which was initial reaction. And it was all about him just wanting the glory. And, you know, and then his relationship with O'Leary, you have to question why, one, why did David want to keep buying so many strikers? And, <laughs> I mean, and, and two, why did Peter let him? If you think about who David had worked with before, you know, our previous manager and what happened to George Graham, you know, You've just got to kind of wonder whether there was an enthusiasm to buy players that went beyond merely, you know, kind of, you know, Peter replenishing the squad. Or maybe David just needed to be told, we're not buying Robbie Keane. We're not buying Robbie Fowler. We've got Mark Viduka, Harry Kuehl, Alan Smith already, you know. Um, and, I, and I think for whatever reason, there was just, there was no sort of financial sort of uh, sobriety in a way. That would be a, a phrase to say. It's like they were drunk on the opportunity of buying players with borrowed money, you know. James, I was determined to keep this interview down to 10, 15 minutes because it's part of a, a, a longer podcast. Obviously, um, I was, I, I'm glad I didn't, but, and we could talk to you all day. But what are you up to at the moment? Animal House, your brilliant book is out in paperback now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's been a relief to finish that. It took me about six years. Um, it's been doing really well. As we speak, I get daily the equivalent of postcards from men I don't know on Twitter. Really? Usually with a picture of a copy of Animal House on a towel next to a beer with a swimming pool just beyond the edge of the sun lounger. <laughs> and it's, and it's, you know what? I've got to tell you, if you're having a bad day, there's nothing better than getting a message saying, I'm loving your audio book or... By the way, I, yeah. I finally bought your book on the way to holiday, and it's and it's great. So that's what's going on in my life right now, uh, in terms of you know public facing stuff. It's there's masses of football in the book, and I could have put masses more. Um, it was just a fantastic time to be uh, a football fan. England obviously w w were doing well throughout the nineties, apart from you know the kind of the ninety three ninety four period. And uh, as whether, you know, whoever you supported, um, there's a, there was a good chance that your team were doing pretty well. 
yeah. I mean, that, no, that's bonkers. Loads of teams were doing shit, but you know what I mean? There was, yeah, it, yeah. There was a period when, I mean, the, the year Leeds came up, we finished fourth. I think Sheffield Wednesday and Ipswich were possibly the two teams above us. And then Arsenal won the league. And, and I think Chef Wednesday, one of those two had come up with us. I think maybe Ipswich had come up with us. And that idea that you could be promoted and then and then go finish in what would now be Champions League places still meant it felt competitive, you know. And and I think that the the, the, the in not so much the invasion, but the the, the sort of invitation for glamorous foreign players to arrive. So Coventry having Peter on love or Derby having yeah. Paolo Conchart, there was just, there were great players scattered around the league. So it was a time when you would, it was exciting to watch the opposition as well as your own team. And that, that, that kind of, that's, that's my memory of, of, of that period really. And yeah. especially for Leeds with the like Yeboah and later Hasselbank, you know, yeah. we had some great players. James, I, I don't know if I've used this comparison before to you, but it's certainly one I've used. I, I'm obsessed with reading. My dad taught me to read when I was four because he was a proper lefty trade unionist and he he thought it was important that working-class kids learnt to communicate as well as the enemy, as he called them. So I've always been into passionate advocate for reading. And yeah. and for me, Loaded was like Harry Potter to an extent. It it got it got people reading. The more important... <laughs> Only in terms of they were two things that that got a group of people reading, adults reading, that that may not necessarily have read before, which is really important to me. I I think Loaded was genuinely important at the time. And also as well, it it sort of began, you know, we're probably talking too much about men's mental health now, as a lot of psychiatrists say, but Loaded within the the articles about football, there, there was stuff in there about, you know, men and their well-being, which was a, a new thing at the time, wasn't it? Not sure about that. <laughs> oh. I, think it was mainly, I think it was mainly about, you know, talking yeah, about right, what the we'll... were good at and then also about how drunk that they could get. I think, but I do think your original point was, is really fair comment, you know, because of the way that market went, uh, with FHM and Maxim copying the sort of raw content and then sticking like, girls on the cover with their cleavage out every single month. People forget, but Loaded was absolutely full with masses and masses of writing. And we had yeah. so many so many good writers, so many homegrown writers. Um, but then also there were a lot of really established writers, like Nick Hornby went to the, the Cup Winners' Cup final for us. Uh, John Ronson wrote some really good features for us. There were... They were kind of, you know, there were there were people in and around the title. Charlie Brooker wrote. I remember doing doing a, a TV thing for us. Um, it was just, you know, there were probably too many articles in it in one respect. And I think the thing that something that I really loved doing was writing about football in a way that we talked about it. So when John Wilde, who was one of the kind of the the early big contributors came to me and said, I want to do this thing called Great Moments in Life. And it'll just be great moments that we talk about. And the first one I want to do is Invasion of the Teenage Parkers. And it was about that shot when Ronnie Radford... Yeah, Hereford, yeah. ...against Newcastle. And he didn't want to talk about the fact, as most people did, it was a giant killing. He He wrote about all of those kids, which was our era, you know, 
running onto the pitch with the green kind of like, the, you know, the, the khaki fur-lined mod parkers, which was, you know, at that time, you know, the, the sort of standard go-to-school coat, you yeah. know. And, and I think that's, that's what we had. We Nobody was telling me what I could or couldn't put in a magazine. We were selling hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copy. And the independent um, readership uh, kind of society of, of, of the publishing world, they reckon four or five people were seeing every issue because wow. it was being it was being read in workplaces, in in, in kind of like further education places, in, in institutions like the uh, the armed forces. So um, probably prisons as well. You know, we used to get a yeah. lot of, of of letters from from guys serving overseas saying how much they loved it. So there were like millions of people seeing every issue, and and as I said, you know, a typical cover. Would it would have been you know Gaza or, or or Jack D or Noel Gallagher? Um, it was a, it was a different it was a very different thing. My time yeah. at Loaded to what it's been misremembered as that first three years. Yeah, my that Hereford photograph, the park is my favourite bit of that photo. Is the the lone policeman who's laughing his head off, which is a a, a laugh that says I'm not going to stop him. It's literally that's him. That's him making his excuse in the photos to his bosses. There's thousands of one last question for you, James. It's been brilliant. Before we leave that goal, I only recently found out that uh, Ronnie Radford had been a Revy boy. Had he? Yeah, he'd been in. He'd, he'd been one. Of, you know, in that same mid sixties generation where where the, the likes of Paul Rainey and Paul Maley and Norman Hunter came through. He was in that youth that youth group at, at Leeds. Wow, I did not know that. Final question, Jay. Are you still playing five-a-side? Yes, I played badly last night because it was my first game in eight weeks. <laughs> I, you uh, know, I love it. And, I, you know, that book that I wrote about playing five-a-side above head height. Yeah, it, great book. Now people, you know, I had a couple of guys just before I went away write to me saying, oh, I've just got this, it's great. And Keir Starmer was talking about it when he was being interviewed about being a football fan recently. Um, and I play twice a week. And I love it. Um, you know, I've, I absolutely I love playing football. I play with some guys who are, you know, are kind of in their late teens, and some who are in their early seventies. I've got no intention of stopping unless, mind you, now I played last night. They may ask me to stop. Um, <laughs> uh, Kieran's very keen to find out which rock star teammate was the worst player. <sighs> oh, worst player. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't. Do you know what? I could. I, I think I wrote about this in Above Head Height. Um, Miles was a good player. The guy from the Shadow Puppets. Yeah. Do you know him? He's. Uh, I forget his surname. He played a couple of times. There was a, there was a guy who used to play with us who was involved in the Teenage Cancer Trust, which is a great charity, uh, and. Uh, he used to bring guys on. I remember one time this guy showed up from a big band now. I don't know what band it was, but he looked like Axl Rose. He had those sort of undershorts, cycle shorts. <laughs> he had a bandana on, and he was a tall guy. And it's like he didn't know some of the rules. He didn't know if you kicked it out. If you kicked it out, it was the other team's throwing. And there was a <laughs> I'm another bit where he, the, the guy beat me on the wing and he was going towards the goal and the goal, he was in goals. He was started walking. To, I was on the left, on the right, and, and they were attacking down the left. And he, I looked back as the guy went past me and he, 
this guy was walking towards left back and leaving the goal. Or so that would be the worst. But I mean, I played football a lot with Steve Jones from the Pistols and Billy Duffy from 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 the Cull. Uh, Bob Mortimer was a good player when I played with Great. Bob. Um, and when I you go back to when I was first on the NME, we had an eleven a side team. I can remember playing Spandau Ballet was probably the best team we played against because. <laughs> It's not just the guys in the band; it's the road crew and the management, yeah, yeah, yeah. And their mother, their brothers, and their mates. Uh, Paul Weller's label, not so good. I can remember <laughs> leaving, leaving Doctor Robert from the Blow Monkeys on the ground, but he was playing with a John Lennon cap on, you know. So over the years, and then and then at the Phoenix Festival, Lodi got involved with helping organise the celebrity five aside there. So. So the best player I played there was everybody was getting musicians to be their celebrity star guest. We got Alan Hudson and Stan Bowles and Craig Johnston. It was cheating, but it was fantastic playing with Stan. And, and I played with Stan and Craig. Wow. They, they, were, they were the best players I obviously ever played with. <laughs> James, I, it's been my lifetime ambition to end an interview with Dr. Robert from the Blow Monkeys writhing about on the, on the pitch. So it's been fantastic to talk to you, James. Really appreciate it. Just really appreciate it. Thank you, mate. Cheers. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches Uh, James Brown's latest book is called Animal House, Music, Magazines and Mayhem. Uh, it's a fascinating book about a fascinating couple of years. But it's, it's, it's really interesting. There's two things that James said that I, I've, I found particularly interesting. Um, one was that he, he wanted passionately to be the, one of the first people to project a positive image of football. And that it really didn't occur to him that this was going to be a huge seismic change it's just that suddenly the kits were a bit better and some better players were coming he wasn't thinking ahead to what might happen and also the idea if there are any agents listening they would just be horrified by the idea that they just phoned players up they just had their <laughs> numbers and another player would give them another number they say have you got Gaza's number yeah of course I have and sometimes they paid the player and sometimes they didn't it it really it, as I say the past is a, a a foreign country but it's it's incredible how much it's changed but it's it's also incredible how much the image of football is so much more positive now because of people like James Brown who deliberately set out to make it so yes it, because all that we knew about footballers was from reading the program and the player profile and that gave a fairly 
narrow uh, analysis uh, and a fairly conservative analysis um, of them. Uh, I mean, I I think I got practically every edition of of Loaded. I I absolutely adored it um, because it, it was so completely different. And uh, you know the style of writing and the fact that they just do long articles and, and they that they do daft stuff. But the, the footballers the footballers wanted to be in in the magazine, um, and as you rightly said, um, they 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 were able to say whatever they wanted. There was no editorial control coming from the agents or the players. Um, and you know, as, as James said, yeah, that, that on occasion got the players into a bit of hot water. But uh, it, it was sort of it was. Uh, Mainly mayhem, you know, it, uh, as far as uh, that particular period of time was concerned, and and it did make football cool, you know, and, and that started to attract, you know, loaded was a loaded was a, a very well written magazine, and, and people yeah. I think have got a misconception of it um, uh, because they they associate it with sort of it, it sort of the other sort of stable people in the, in that particular race, you know, the likes of FHM, which then then we had that, you know, that awful period where we had nuts and zoo. I think that's what people remember oh, yeah. in, in yeah, terms yeah. of Lads Mag. And and Loaded was miles away from that. And it had it had sort of helped to I wouldn't say gentrify, but football then started to become popular amongst the middle classes in, in a way that it had never been before. Um because the the nature of the writing was so good, and also you you started to see footballers as as being more than than the stereotypes that that we've been brought up with. Yeah, I, I was. Um, I've never told you this before, Kieran, for obvious oh. reasons. But I was part of a I was part of a, a makeup and fashion spread into. I'm, I'm not I'm not proud of it. They, it's an idea that they obviously had at half past five on a Friday afternoon to get some comedians in to be photographed in various chairs in beauty salons discussing their favourite moisturising <laughs> tips. <laughs> and, and you've been taking the mickey out of me for the last four years for being, for being bourgeois. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, get, um, let's end, Kieran, with a, a bit of perspective on how the Premier League has really changed the game so dramatically in terms of finance by looking at uh, two teams then and now who were founder members of the Premier League, Oldham Athletic and Manchester United. Just If you could just briefly talk us through what's happened to those clubs in terms of finances since. And obviously the change for Oldham has been drastic for many reasons, which is why I chose them, basically. Yeah. Uh, first, of all, first of all, I'd like to say, company sales, love you. Um, <laughs> if, if we go back to um, that, that very first season... Manchester United had uh, income of twenty-five million pounds, and the average Manchester United salary was three thousand five hundred pounds a week. Uh, so, but in terms of income, Manchester United have gone from twenty-five million to five hundred and eighty-three. Wow! And Oldham have gone from four point seven million to approximately four point five million. By wow. the time they got to twenty one twenty two, so you, you could you absolutely you, you've chosen two fantastic clubs there. Um, in terms of wages, the the average weekly wage at Manchester United has gone from three and a half thousand pounds a week to one hundred and seventy eight thousand pounds a week. Yeah, that's wow. that's 
closing on 10 million pounds a year. Yeah. Uh, so, so closing on nine. Uh, whereas the average wage at Oldham was £1,250 a week in 91-92, but was down to 1100 a week by the time we got to 21-22. So you know, those are two clubs in, in Greater Manchester. And uh, you know, I think everybody had a soft spot for Oldham at the time. You, you remember them you know, doing really well in, in, in the cup finals and Frankie Barr yeah. and Andy Ritchie and yeah. so on. They, they were a decent tired side to watch. They had the plastic pitch, which caused a bit of controversy as well. But they, they, were, they were seen as being sort of a, uh, a Premier League uh, you know, stalwart initially. Uh, and, yeah, it has been a, uh, it's, it's been a, a sad journey uh, at times. And, and sometimes, you know, the, the club of you know, fans have been crossing their fingers to make sure that they still had an Oldham Athletics to support the following day. Yeah. Kieran, yeah. Um, we come to the end of our, uh, the last of our special summer pods. It's been so complicated organising the recording of these things that <laughs> next year, uh, wherever we are for the two weeks of July, I think we just phone each other up on the Monday and Thursday and just do it as normal. Because yes. <laughs> <laughs> especially you, you trying to fit in the recording of these has been uh, very difficult for us. I really appreciate you doing it. Um, so thank you to that. We will be back on Monday the 31st of July, I think it is. We'll be back to normal. Uh, hopefully catching up with I, I'm praying that nothing's happened in the two weeks since we've been awake there to be a lot of things will have happened anyway um, that, that all new yellow kit that Brighton are now wearing because of the Saudi Arabian bribe they got we'll, we'll be covering that thank you Kieran for, for doing this for us thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash price of football. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at price of football.com. As I say, we'll be back on Monday. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thanks to everybody. And the, the, the reason why we've been doing these extra shows, you know, we, we were recording at 11 o'clock on a Friday night um, <laughs> because we know you enjoy them. You tell us so, and and we do feel we've got a sort. We, we sort of we've got a, a an unwritten contract uh, with with the listeners. Yeah, we we we, we and also we we let's sorry, be honest. We enjoy it as well. Yeah, um, yeah. There, there's there's other ways you can support the show. However, um, you can you can give us a review, and you can go onto your app and uh, uh, yeah, give us whatever you think we're worth. Uh, by all accounts. It helps in the algorithms. It doesn't matter what you say. So you could even say you would rather have the show presented by Arsene Wenger and Robin Williams. And I think that would be quite a surreal show, The Professor and Robin Williams. Oh, that would be good, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Well, we can't make that happen, obviously. But well, yeah. the, of, all, of all the options you've offered recently, Kieran, that's the one I'd most like to... Uh, to see, you know, we we know how much I adore Robin Williams, but mm. I saw Arsene Wenger do a Q and A thing once. He was brilliant. He's really funny, yeah. and and he took a lot of time to speak to everybody afterwards as well. So, oh, I wonder if we could make that happen and ask him whether Ian Wright's ketchup story was actually true. That'd be great. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.
the Proviasum Photoball. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. <laughs> 